In this fourth conference, I'd like to speak to you about conformity to the will of God, about purity of intention, about tepidity, and devotion to the Blessed Mother and to our Lord, the Sacred Heart. All sanctity consists in loving God, and the love of God consists in fulfilling his holy will. This is our life. He who is always united to the will of God is at peace. For the divine will takes away the bitterness of the cross. You see, you see individuals, at least we priests do, see individuals in different parishes who are always upset. Everything's wrong. The, the sky has always fallen in. Uh, they don't have that peace because they do not have a certain conformity to the will of God. And starting out apart from my notes, I may have mentioned it to you in years past, that our Lord took special delight in dwelling in the soul of St. Gertrude because she, even as a little girl, I picture her at five, six, seven years of age, had perfect conformity to the will of God. This made her so pleasing to God that many of the saints consider her the second holiest woman in heaven. By saying God wills it so, God has so willed, holy souls find peace in all their labors. Scripture says that whatsoever shall befall a just man, it shall not make him sad. Most often, I think if we look into our conscience, most often things go wrong with us because we make them go wrong. If we were resigned to the will of God, everything would go well. Everything we would see for our good. The crosses which God sends us are misfortunes because we make them misfortunes. Uh, Father Jenkins and I, for many years, had a travel agent who was Episcopalian. And we would so often call him up with problems with our flights. And then, and then we would apologize to him. He said, there's no need to apologize, Father. It's an opportunity. That was such a Christian, such a Catholic way of looking at the cross. It's an opportunity. I was very impressed with this young man. If we would take them with resignation these misfortunes would no longer be misfortunes. They would be riches for paradise. One of the venerable ladies in our parish, in a, in a parish, not here, broke her leg. She was about 70, 60, 65-ish at the time. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry you broke your leg. And she says, I'm not. It's an opportunity for me to offer up for my children. And some of her children needed her prayers, needed her sacrifice. Such a devout mother, such a wonderful soul. Venerable Balthazar Alvarez says, He who in his trouble resigns himself with peacefulness to the divine will of God runs to God with great haste. 
like for you to firstly consider that a, cro a cross most common to all, sickness. Worldly people call illnesses misfortunes, but the saints call illness visitations from God. The saints call illnesses favors. When we are ill, we ought to certainly try to take remedies to, in order to be cured, but we should also and always be resigned to whatever God disposes. And if we pray for restoration to health, let it always be done with resignation. Otherwise, we shall not obtain the favor. We gain so much when we are ill by offering our suffering up to Almighty God. We gain so much. You can tell in the hospitals the truly Christian, the truly Catholic soul from those who have no faith, from those who don't understand why God is letting this happen to them. As Father Dennis McMahon once said in a funeral sermon, we are all born to die. One who loves God from his heart does not desire to be cured of his illness in order not to suffer, but he desires to please God by suffering. He can still pray for a cure of the illness. It was this love which made the scourge, the rack, the gridiron, the burning pitch sweet and holy, sweet to the holy martyrs. Because the love St. Lawrence had for God, he was insensible to the fire which was roasting his body. We must also be especially resigned in mortal sickness to accept death at the time that God chooses us to die in order that his will may be fulfilled. This acceptance of death, the time of death, merits for us rewards similar to that of the martyrs because they accepted death also to please Almighty God. One who dies in union with God's holy will makes a holy death. And more closely, he is united to it, that death in union with God, the more holy does his death become. The venerable Blosius declares that an act of perfect conformity to the will of God at the hour of death not only delivers one from hell, delivers one from purgatory. In other words, a perfect act of conformity to the will of God at the hour of death merits for one a plenary indulgence. Secondly, we must also unite ourselves to the will of God with regard to our natural defects, our want of talent, being born of low birth, we being born weak or weak health. All that we have is a free gift from God. He could have made us a fly. He could have made us a blade of grass. A hundred years ago, I think it's safe to say, we were nothing. Now look at us, capable of living, breathing, singing, talking, walking, working, and the list goes on. 
We have now been given the power of becoming saints without most of the aforementioned qualities. We can still become saints through His grace if we have the will. There are many unfortunate individuals who have lost their souls because of their talents. Be content with what God has done for you. And thank Him always for the good things He has given to you. And particularly for giving you the holy Catholic faith. This is the greatest gift that you have received from God. Because in that faith, your soul has been made alive. And there are so few found to thank God for the gift of faith. Were not the ten made clean, our Lord asked. Thirdly, we must resign ourselves in all adversity, which may happen to us. Loss of property, loss of our expectations, loss of relatives, and the attacks and persecutions we may meet from others. We have to resign ourselves to adversity. Trees are made strong in adversity when the wind blows against them. And when the traditional Catholic suffers adversity, he too can become strong. You won't build strong muscles unless there's adversity, unless there's weights to push against or lift or work to be done. We know that God does not will sin. So how is it that I must be resigned when someone commits sin against me, wrongs me or attacks me or defrauds me? This is not the will of God. Well, it's the permissive will of God. But God does not will the sin of such a one, but he permits it. On the other hand, he does will the adversity which we suffer by means of this person. So it is with our Lord himself who sends you the cross, though it comes to you by means of your neighbor. Therefore, even in these cases, you must embrace the cross as coming from Almighty, Almighty God. Do we always see the reason for such treatment? We don't. But St. Therese answers that question. If you're willing to bear only those crosses for which you see a reason, perfection is not in you. We have to bear the crosses for which we do not see a reason. Fourthly, we must be resigned to aridity of soul, dryness of soul. If when we say our prayers, we make our communions, and visit the Blessed Sacrament, we seem to be weary, it gives us no comfort, no consolation, we should be satisfied that because of our efforts, God is pleased. And thus, the less satisfaction we feel ourselves in our devotion, the more pleasure do we give to God. That's what uh, we read in The Dark Night of the Soul. Everybody goes through times of aridity. This is a test period to see if you're going to persevere. It's a test period from God whether you or I are going to persevere in our prayers. We're not saying our prayers for us to get consolation. We're saying our prayers that God may receive consolation, honor, adoration, and glory. At no time can we know better our own insufficiency and misery 
than at the time of aridity. And therefore let us humble ourselves with prayers. Let us put ourselves with resignation into God's hands and say, Lord, I do not deserve consolations. I desire nothing but you. Have pity on me. Keep me in your grace and do with me what you will. One of the most joyful stories I tell of the children in the religion class is when St. Thomas Aquinas had finished writing the Summa Theologica. He saw it as cheap. He saw it as nothing. And he took his work, several volumes, and he was going over to the fireplace and he was going to throw them in the fire. And our Lord stopped him and said, Thomas, what are you doing? And it was going to destroy his life's work. And our Lord said, Thomas, you've written well of me. You've done as best as a human can do. You've written well. What do you want in return? And the, the most beautiful part of the story was Thomas's answer. Nothing but you. Nothing but you. He did it for God. When we lose any of our possessions or when one of our relatives die or anything else, let us pray, thy will is also my will. I will conform my will to yours, dear Lord. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of the term purity of intention? The practice of intention consists in doing everything solely for the purpose of pleasing God. The good or bad intention with which an action is performed renders the act good or bad before Almighty God. St. Mary Magdalene de Pazzi says, God rewards actions according to the amount of purity of intention with which they are performed. In the first place, in all of our exercises of devotion, let us seek God and not ourselves. If we seek our own satisfaction, we cannot expect to receive a reward from God. And this holds good for all spiritual works. Some of you go to the gym, maybe daily, maybe several times a week. You go there to build a healthy body, a strong body, so that you can beat the little boys up at summer camp and things. Many labor and exhaust themselves in preaching, hearing sermons, serving the altar, doing other pious works. And because they seek themselves, they do not seek God. They lose the merit that they have. When we seek neither the applause nor the thanks from others for what we do, it is a sign that we are working for God's sake as also when we are not disturbed at the good we undertake not succeeding, or when we rejoice as much as any good that is done by others, as if it was done by ourselves, God is pleased. Whenever we have done some good in order to please God, let us not torment ourselves in endeavoring to drive away vainglory. If we are praised, 
It is enough to say, or even just to think, to God is the honor, to God is the glory. We should never admit doing any good action which may edify our neighbor, though we fear vainglory in ourselves. Our Lord wishes us to do good before others, that it might be profitable to them. So let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you do good, have first the intention of pleasing God. And secondly, that also have given a good example to your neighbor. In the second place, in our bodily actions, whether we work, eat, drink, amuse ourselves, let us do all in order to please God. You do that, dear men, when you make your morning offering. You consecrate all your prayers, works, joys, and sufferings to our Lord. Purity of intention makes us alchemist. What is an alchemist? one who works with metals, I believe. Purity of intention changes iron into gold. The most trivial and ordinary actions, when done to please God, become divine acts of love. Trivial things. St. Mary Magdalene, once again, de Pazzi, used to say, a person who performs all of his actions with a pure intention, will go straight to paradise. A holy hermit, before putting his hand to any work, used to raise his eyes to heaven and keep them fixed there for a short time. And when he was one day asked what he was doing, he answered, I am taking my aim so that I might not miss my mark. He was doing it for heaven. Let us also do in like manner before beginning any action. Take your aim. Tell our Lord that you do this to please him. So often we struggle with tepidity. Souls that make no account of venial sin, they give themselves up to tepidity. Oh, it's only a venial sin. They give themselves up to tepidity. Without a thought of freeing themselves from it, they live in great danger of losing their souls. We do not say that one com commits a venial sin goes to hell, but these venial sins dispose one to, and weakens one for when the big assault comes from the devil. We do not here speak of those venial sins that are committed by mere frailty, such as a useless or an idle word or negligence in some small matter, but we speak of venial sins committed with full deliberation. A lot of people think they are gaining plenary indulgences on All Souls Day who cuss like a sailor. I hope there's no sailors here. Who cuss like a sailor. They don't have any problem with doing this or stealing this little thing from the office or defrauding someone of their money or whatever. It's their fault they should have known what the price was. They don't gain plenary indulgence unless they have a hatred of venial sin. And this explains it well. That doesn't mean that they don't commit a venial sin through frailty, but with that full deliberation. Well, I'm, well, 
father so-and-so said to eat meat on Fridays of venial sin, so I'll eat meat on Friday. That's disputed whether it's venial or mortal, it's inside of Lent, outside of Lent, and different things. Uh, but if we're willing to commit the venial sins, we cannot gain the plenary indulgences. We have to f fight them and resist them as best we can. And if through weakness or we let down our guard, we commit them, that is not the same as a deliberate venial sin. St. Teresa writes, From all deliberate sin, however so small it may be, deliver me, O Lord. Those venial sins of backbiting, dislike, acts of impatience, acts of intemperance, these indeed do not kill the soul, but they weaken the soul, so that when any great temptation takes it unexpectedly, the soul will not have the strength to resist, and then consequently will fall. Deliberate venial sin weakens the soul as they deprive us of the divine assistance. For it is but just that God should be sparing to those who are sparing towards him. He says, he who sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. And that is what a soul that has received special graces from God has the most reason to fear, sowing sparingly. Still more ought the soul to fear lest such faults should be caused by some passion or passionate attachment, such as ambition or avarice or aversion towards any person. It happens frequently to souls that are in bondage to some passion, such as gambling, who after losing time and time again, we have a mathematician here, losing time and time again, Ah, we're going to get it this next time. We're going to win it all back. Okay? Let it, he, he, so he risks any, everything. He throws it all in, all or nothing. The mathematical statistics are still there. The chance is still the same. And he, more, more often than not, ends up losing everything. We can't do that in the spiritual life. You have worked very hard to be good men. You've worked very hard you cannot risk that in the end. You can't throw in all the chips. And what a miserable state is the soul which is the slave of some passion. Passion blinds. Let us, it lets us no longer see what we do. Let us now come to the practice of what we have to do in order to deliver our souls from tepidity. First, it's necessary to have a firm desire to get out of the state of tepidity. The alcoholic cannot overcome his alcoholism until he acknowledges that he has a problem with the bottle. Okay, he can't do it. The first thing, if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, I've never been there. First thing is that you've got to acknowledge that you're an alcoholic and be willing to work on it. The good desire lightens our labors, and gives us strength to go forward. Let us rest assured that he who makes no progress in the way of God will always lose ground. In the spiritual life, the moral life, if you don't become better each day, you go backwards. There's no sitting still. There's no level 
field, so to speak. There's a slope, one way or the other, to perfection or back uh, to uh, imperfection. And he who loses ground commits a mortal sin. If you don't become better every day, he will go back so far that he will seriously fall. Secondly, you have to try to find out your predominant fault, that to which you are most attached. It might be anger. It might be ambition. It might be some inordinate affection to a person or a thing. Only a resolute will overcomes. And a resolute will overcomes all with the help of God. Thirdly, we must, as we know in our examination of conscience and our study for confession, we must avoid the occasion. Otherwise, our resolutions will fall to the ground. We must be diffident to our own strength and pray continually with all confidence to God, begging his help in dangers, in the dangers in which we are, and to deliver us from the temptations that we shall fall into. I tell the kids, even in my classroom, even if they, when they ask, can we mark out one on their test? If you don't ask, you don't get. Okay? Our Lord said the same thing, but in much nicer, much loftier words. He who prays obtains. Our Lord says, ask and you shall receive. This is a promise of God and can never fail. And therefore, we must always and habitually and repeatedly pray. If we don't get what we want, pray again, but always have conformity to God's holy will. I do want to end this conference. We have a few more minutes here with turning our attention to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the object of our devotion. In order to ensure eternal salvation, it is most important to be devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary. If there is any doubt, one should look at books written by St. Alphonsus, especially the glories of Mary. In our struggle to remain pure, we should, upon rising each morning and retiring each evening, say three Hail Marys to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and perhaps a short prayer like this one, by the pure and immaculate conception, O Mary, make me pure in body and holy in soul. We thus put ourselves under her protective mantle. It is said, I don't have it in my notes, but I do have reference to it here. I recall reading on St. Patrick that he said 20,000 prayers a day. 20,000. Okay, that's a long time. I got my little calculator out, and I said, what if each prayer took five seconds? How long would it take for a big a part of his day? And it took many hours to do 20,000 prayers at five seconds of prayer. We may not be able to match, and he also said half of the Psalms in the river every day, whether it's winter, spring, summer, or fall, half of the 150 Psalms of King David. 
Back in his time, priests had to memorize the Bible. Very fortunate that I didn't have to do that. Uh, we may not match the number of prayers that St. Patrick said, but we can pray hundreds of times each day. The last conference or the last meal we had before lunch with the ladies retreat, the computers shut down. I don't know anything about computers, and this is Father Jenkins' computer, and he had his password on it. We tried to get it going, but we couldn't, so I picked up the book on the Holy Name, and I began reading. Wow, was I impressed by that book. And how, just how the Catholic man must say over and over and over again each day the name of Jesus. That's a prayer. And when he, we, we need to be in the habit of saying it. We can do that anytime, anywhere. We can do that every step we take. Some of you live down at the Tally Lodge right now. A couple hundred steps. You can say a couple hundred prayers on your way down there and back each time. A young farm boy milking the cow. Every time he gets a squirt of milk from the cow, he can say a little prayer. Every time he throws a shovel full of grain into the grinder to make the cow feed, he can say a prayer. I mean, you can do that. Are you living in Norwood? Every time you hear a, sir, a siren, you can say a prayer, and that's hundreds every day. Uh, you can just every time you dim your lights, say a prayer, Jesus, Jesus. We have to be constantly in the habit of reverently saying the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do, there's such power. Uh, communists have been driven out of cities by people simply repeating over and over and over again the name of Jesus. So also, okay, you begin and finish any of your occupations, such as your study, your work, your recreation, your meals, have recourse to the mother of God. Secondly, we've been told by the mother of God, the power of the rosary. She asks us to pray it daily at least five decades. The most devout have a habit of the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Thirdly, we should say one Our Father and one Hail Mary to the Blessed Trinity each day. In thanksgiving for the graces that God bestowed upon his own Blessed Mother. And the Blessed Virgin once again revealed that this practice, the one Our Father and the Hail Mary to the Blessed Trinity, in thanksgiving for the graces bestowed upon Mary, was most pleasing to Mary. Fourthly, our Lord tells us how important fasting is in driving out the devil and in disciplining the passions. So a modified fast in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary is very valuable to the soul. In short, we can make use of some kind of mortification on Saturdays or on the vigils of her feast day. St. Andrew of Crete says that the Blessed Virgin rewards us greatly for some small sacrifice on our part. Fifthly, and I hope all of you have some sort of shrine or statue in your homes. Fifthly, pay a visit every day to some image of our patroness, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and ask her to give us perseverance in the love of God. Perseverance is a virtue, a grace, excuse me, 
It could be a virtue too, I presume. Perseverance is a grace that we cannot merit. It is a free gift of God. We can pray for it and dispose ourselves to it, remind ourselves the necessity of it, and God may give it to us at the hour of our death. If he doesn't, heaven help us. Although we will fall short, we should try to love him as she loves him. Sixthly, no day should pass without reading some something of the Blessed Virgin Mary or else some prayer to Our Lady. No day should pass. We should ask our confessor to tell us what devotions or mortifications we should practice. Each of you should have a, a priest that you call your confessor. And it should be the one that you predominantly go to confession to. Some of you may have choices. Some of you may not in certain missions and places. You may not, it may be the same priest every Sunday. Well, he should become your confessor. You should ask him what devotion he would like for you to practice. You should ask him, maybe before Lent, what mortifications he would recommend you practice. It will vary from priest to priest. It will vary from penitent to penitent. Father Randolph, I had the unique privilege of, Father, Father Rizzo and I had the privilege of going to Rochester every Easter break uh, and staying there at the parish. And Father Randolph would come down from Canada every weekend to offer Mass there. He gave us one of our first retreats in the seminary back in about 1979, maybe 80. And he could not speak of Our Lady without tears in his eyes. Often recommend yourself to Our Lady throughout the day, particularly in times of temptation. If you love Mary, try to promote devotion to this great Mother of God, to this Queen of Heaven. Try to encourage devotion amongst your relatives and friends. There's plenty of opportunity. There's Our Lady's Sodality. There are rosary groups. There are those who meet on Wednesday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays in different parts of the cities and go on rosary processions every week. Your presence is so much needed there and so much appreciated there. Our Lord Jesus Christ ought to be your whole life. When the boy puts on his surplice, he should be saying the prayer, asking our Lord to clothe him with the new man who is created in, in the image of Christ. He alone is worthy of all of our love, both because he is our God and a God of infinite goodness, and because he loves us with an excess of love, so much of an excess that he died for us. How great are our obligations to love God. All the good we enjoy, all the pardons that we have experienced, all of our inspirations, which have helped others, all of our hopes, all of our consolations, all of our affections come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, all of our good affections. We can acquire the love of God by doing the following. First of all, we must have a desire to love God. 
and we must therefore ask him to give it to us. It's a special grace. Ask him in our prayers to give us a love for him in our communions, in our visits to the Blessed Sacrament. This grace must be sought at from the hands of the Mother of God, as she is the mediatrix of all graces. It's interesting, the computer has mediator as a word, but it does not have mediatrix as a word, at least my computer, which is near the dinosaur era. It's about 10 years old. St. Francis de Sales says that the grace of loving our Lord Jesus Christ contains all the other graces in itself. Because he who truly loves our Lord Jesus Christ cannot be wanting of any virtue. Secondly, if we wish to acquire the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must detach ourselves, our hearts, from the earthly affections. Divine love will find no place in the heart that's full of the world. St. Philip Neri used to say, the love we give to creatures is all so much taken from God. St. Philip Neri was a cheerful saint. St. John Bosco's people accused St. Philip Neri's people of being too, too worldly, too cheerful, too festive, too celebratory. St. Philip Neri was a great saint. Thirdly, we must often exercise acts of love to our Lord Jesus Christ. These exercises of love are the fuel which keeps alive in our heart the fire of charity. When we make these acts of love, we receive from the goodness of God and we begin to love God more than ourselves. We also have to make acts of contrition which are called acts of sorrowful love. Fourthly, if we wish to be sure of being inflamed with the love of our Lord, we must meditate or contemplate his holy passion. Christ said that no exercise was more efficacious in enkindling love than the consideration of the suffering and ignominy which Jesus Christ endured for love of us. What he is saying there is that the stations of the cross are more efficacious than any other prayer besides the Mass. The stations of the cross. Because in the stations of the cross we meditate upon the passion of our Lord. It is impossible that a soul meditating often on the passion can resist his love. Although he could have saved us by a single drop of his blood, Christ could have saved us by a single prayer, he chose to suffer so much, and not to shed a single drop of his blood, but to shed all his blood, that he might attract all hearts to him. Therefore, he who meditates on his passion does what is very agreeable to Almighty God. Have a devotion to the passion at least on Fridays. So many of you, even after a few days of surgery, you make it to the stations. I was edified by that. 
Some saints experienced what they called darts of fire. And these were joyous pains they experienced from their love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an unfamiliar to ladies bearing children. They experience such great pain, but it is a joyful pain when they see the precious soul and body laid out before them. These darts of pain gave such unimaginable joy to the souls that were favored to receive them. These darts of pain, darts of fire, help them to understand the love of our Lord for them and the work of the redemption of mankind.